entering the Freedom Hut. California back into lockdown. The teachers unions holding students hostage this fall. Cuomo's extreme quarantine rules. And what is anti-racism? Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Great to have you here with me, as always. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure to get to talk to you about everything happening across the country. My, my, we have... Uh, A very clear declaration of intent, I think, from the teachers unions, which we should always think of as the uh, as the 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 shock troops, if you will, of the Democrat Party. They are right out there and have been for a long time. They don't burn down buildings. They just hold the kids hostage going into this fall, saying that they uh, are, are they're making demands of what they want. And this at a time when the whole country is trying to figure out, wait, what what exactly is going to happen here if we're now going to have these restrictions in place that are even preventative restrictions in some states that don't have very high COVID cases. We have extreme restrictions in other places. Who knows when those can end? Because then you might have a surge in cases uh, there. There is just a panic out there right now. And schools are now on the front lines of the make sure Biden gets elected campaign. That's what's happening with the teachers unions. I'll I'll get into more of that. And what are their demands? What are the demands that they're putting out there? In case you were wondering if they really are acting like a teachers unions are acting like a Marxist terrorist group that has taken our schools hostage. And my friends, we are entering this phase now where everything about COVID, the economy, Law enforcement, it's just all a big political fight. You will not have any good faith effort from Democrats to come into the center on these issues or to work with Republicans to make anything better. And of course, I don't think Republicans will go over to their side. They already have a little bit with some of this police reform stuff, but I also think they shouldn't go over to their side. I think the Democrats obviously are wrong on all this stuff. Uh, but they will they will double down. They will dig in. They're not going to move on any of this in the least. And then that brings me uh, to what we're seeing at in, or, or in California. Now, remember, remember the narrative for the last week or so has been that California, that, that the states that are having a really rough time, really the last two weeks, Texas and Florida, Texas and Florida. You know, yesterday I, I had that guy from MSNBC. Texas and Florida are the dumbest leaders and they're so stupid. And they're du-. and, and then we have, sure enough, California now going back into a lockdown, stay at home orders now. California is saying, you know, you, you got to you got to respect our authority to tell you exactly what to do after weeks of protests. After weeks of protests that not only were allowed, but that Governor Newsom was encouraging. They were all pretending that this was fine. They want to lecture us all about public health. They want to allow the Democrat 
the, the Democrat base of lunatics to mobilize in the streets. Oh, we're all so oppressed and police violence. All that stuff. And now, after the virus has reached large levels, high levels of, of uh, cases in these states, they're telling us that they want to bring back all of the all the old stuff of shutdown, lockdown, same thing. That's what they're trying to do. This is astonishing. Here's Governor Newsom saying it himself, play clip seven. We are now effectively, uh, rather effective today, requiring all counties to close their indoor activities, their indoor operations uh, in the following sectors. Restaurants, wineries, tasting rooms, movie theaters, family entertainment centers, zoos and museums, card rooms, uh, and uh, the shuttering of all bars. This is in every county in the state of California, uh, not just the counties that were on the monitoring list uh, that we announced on July 1st. Uh, So this is a new statewide action uh, effective today. Every county in the state of California impacted uh, by a requirement now to modify indoor operations and to expand opportunities uh, for outdoor operations uh, in these specific categories. Now, to be fair and to be clear, they're Getting they're they're moving back. They're not going all the way back to square one. You can still have some outdoor things that are allowed. But just wait. Just wait. See where this goes. See what ends up happening, uh, especially if cases continue for to be very high for a, a few more weeks. There's a problem with what we've been told the last uh, last few weeks about what's happening in the country with COVID-19. Texas and Florida have been the focus of all the criticism from the media. Why? Because they both have Republican governors and they're considered to be full of enough red state people, even though Florida is not a red state, although we should probably all move there, my friends, and flip it like now. Make sure. Hint, hint. Let's all go. Let's all. You know, I got an idea. You guys want Trump to win? Those of you that are thinking about Florida, producer Mark included, maybe it's time for us to head on down there, register and make it happen. So they've been focused on Texas and Florida because Texas and Florida are able to be put on the Republican side of the equation. And I know that it's very imperfect. And now they're even saying I've seen these polling that says the Democrats are thinking that Texas might even be a battleground state for them. And Biden's up five points. And I don't think that the Democrats are going to win Texas. But remember, if the Democrats win Texas, we're we're <laughs> it's all over. So keep that in mind. Um California, though, is a state that has been sanctimonious in its we respect the science. We wear masks. We've been very slow to reopen. California was the place where they were shutting down beaches and they were chasing individual paddle boarders out on the ocean with nobody within hundreds of yards because of COVID-19. That's the state of California run entirely by Democrats, dominated by Democrat voters. This is the liberal left wing stronghold of America, really only rivaled by New York. And California has had an enormous spike in cases. And now they're shutting down. So if if what we've been told recently was true, that it was because Republicans don't believe the science. 
right? This is where we always say, Republicans don't wear enough masks. You got a lot of mask wearing in California. You got all kinds of, you know, they'll listen to, everyone listens to Democrats there. They believe the science, all that stuff. Why is California in this condition right now then? Now, there is an answer to this that isn't really about the science entirely, which is they're always going to err on the side of more strict lockdown, more uh, restrictions on economic activity. Because the Democrats, remember, not only are they going to have, uh, do they have the incentive of beating Trump in the fall, they're also going to just keep pumping money, uh, pumping money through the system to people. And they're going to keep their social services going. They're going to do all these things while small businesses are going out of business, of course. And then they're going to make demands from the federal government. And they're going to start raising taxes on people that still have jobs and are, are being uh, productive. Now, not to say that people without jobs in, in millions of cases, it's no one's fault. I'm just saying they're going to go after whoever still has a job or whoever owns a home, raising their property taxes and start redistributing wealth that way. That's their plan. So they're not worried about it. If everyone has to stay home, order in, you know, groceries and watch Netflix until Election Day, state of California is pretty much fine with that. That's what it seems like. And if it means that Donald Trump is guaranteed to lose the election, which I'm just going to say this, if you have major states on lockdown and an economy that has not been able to recover, it's going to be it's going to be a miracle if Donald Trump wins. It's going to be a miracle. Now, some of you are probably already saying, yeah, Buck, but it was a miracle in 2016, wasn't it? True. True. But are we really going to expect two miracles in a row? You know, expect lightning to strike twice? I'm concerned. I think we all should be very, very concerned. But I, I just want to point to California as a place where I'm sure the mask shaming was at a maximum and has been for a long time. And you have uh, a, a, an entirely Democrat controlled state legislature, a Democrat governor. They hate Trump. They're all, you know, Dr. Fauci is the voice of uh, sanity, reason, decency and all the rest of it. And yet they're having to shut down now. I don't think they would shut down if they didn't have a high level of cases. They have had. I have friends in California who I know have gotten covid in the last 30 days. So, I mean, I, I'm talking to people who are saying, yeah, they've had it. Most of them, I'll just have, you know, minimal symptoms. Some it's like the flu and they're in rough shape, but I don't know anybody in California who's gotten a really, really bad version of the disease. But this is now going to be the fight between now and Election Day. What you're going to see is the absolute politicization of every decision made in the name of public health. To really be about defeating Trump that between now and then we've known this is coming for a while, but we've really we've reached the tipping point. We're middle of July, you know, the next 90 days, you're just going to see, nope, shut it down, keep it shut down, everyone be panicked. Don't worry, the, the cavalry is coming, America, they will tell you, in the form of Joe Biden, let's just hope he knows which way to ride the horse. There I am, I showed up, but I'm on, wait, which way, where am I? Yeah. Joe Biden's going to fix all of this. Joe Biden is the answer to our prayers. It's a terrifying thought, but that's what we're going to be told. And the, the viciousness, you know, for years, Democrats were, were so nasty about Trump. I mean, really, really insidious in 
not just the way they talked about the president, but also their view of his supporters when things were great, not fighting any big wars, booming economy, and they still convince themselves fascism is coming to America. Trump has been given with this whole COVID pandemic an enormous open door. If he really was a fascist or somebody who wanted to be an authoritarian, an enormous or open door. You know, the only people who are walking through that door and being little petty tyrants are Democrats. No surprise. But they were saying that Trump was a fascist and a tyrant and all these horrible things when the country was doing so well and everything was pretty much on track. It wasn't perfect. Yeah, we got problems. Of course, right? I'm not I'm not crazy. All that remember all that stuff about the border and the border surge and how do we get control? Democrats are lying about that, of course. Oh, they're just going for they're all fleeing because they need asylum. No, they just wanted to cheat the system and come into the country. But those were the challenges we were dealing with before. Now I mean you're looking at a death toll that's gonna be between 150 and 200,000 come election day. And the Democrat left, instead of looking at what's going on around the whole world and the fact that there have been a lot of deaths from this disease, and this is it's a very it's a tragic and terrible circumstance that there is this pandemic that is a global phenomenon. Instead of saying this was a challenge that hit us akin to similar to a a natural disaster, like a massive earthquake or a tsunami or something like that, they're going they're going to put the blame squarely on Trump's shoulders and Trump supporters. They're going to say, they're already convinced of this, that the reason people have died from COVID-19 is not that it is a highly infectious and uh, very dangerous virus or dangerous to people of a certain age with certain comorbidities. That's the real danger zone. But instead of viewing it that way, they're going to view it as every single death, every... Uh, lost life from this disease can be attributed to Trump and the supporters that put him in office. That's the plan. Of course, that's unfair. It's immoral. It's crazy. But they don't care. This is what they're going to do. I'm telling you, I've predicted the Democrats moves for months. And you know that. I've been telling you, wargaming out what their next plan is. I told you we'd get to lockdown 2.0. I've told you that they were going to say, that there was no danger from the protests. And then when enough time passed, they're like, yeah, maybe there was a little bit of transmission from, but now we're way past that. Now the transmission's community spread. So who cares that the protests did, in fact, the gov- I mean, the uh, mayor of Los Angeles has said that the protesters probably did, yeah, spread this. So let's all be very clear right now about what is coming our way and what we are facing. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. President Trump's total hostility towards science, evidence, facts, logic, reason. He is a showman. He is a reality TV star. He likes to try to bend reality to suit his own preferences. He had really made it clear that he was more interested in the optics than the facts when the uh, virus first hit. And he kept saying, you know, we have 15 cases. It'll be over soon. So you've got 
to begin and end with his total lack of leadership, his indifference toward what this virus has cost us, not only in lives, but in jobs and livelihoods. And then now, of course, he doesn't want to hear from our leading infectious disease experts like Dr. Fauci. He doesn't want to hold uh, the even the sham of the meetings that he used to hold to try to talk about it. He's, he's hoping that it either goes away or it leaves our attention span so that he can get back okay, to you okay. know, pretending Enough. to be president. Good God. Too much Hillary. Sorry about that, team. But here she is telling you, you could say, what happened? Remember, she was going to be president of the United States, everybody. And now she's all, Donald Trump doesn't have leadership. I should have been the leader. Oh, it's horrible. I know. It hurts your ears. It hurts my ears. But that's, it's really the most true, most true to the essence of Hillary impression you could ever do. It's just all off-putting and screechy and awful. Uh, but yes, that's right. She's telling you exactly what I said the Democrats will continue to say, which is that Donald Trump's lack of leadership has cost us lives and jobs. Meanwhile, let's look at the choices that the president made about the virus. He handed over uh, the policy essentially to Burks and Fauci. So the, li- the not listening to the experts thing is just a lie. He shut down flights from China, which now everyone who looks at this admits, well, that was a good idea. It wasn't perfect. It didn't stop everything, obviously, but it was a good idea. And he was heavily criticized for that. And that was an early decision. They said we were going to run out of ventilators. He used the Defense Production Act. Bam, lots of ventilators, more ventilators than we need. Turns out ventilators aren't even a very good uh, way to uh, treat the disease. It's a really a very much a last ditch effort. But. They said we're going to run out of PPE, Defense Production Act. Nope, we didn't run out of PPE. And then they said that Trump was going to be a tyrant by telling states what to do. No, he said the CDC's guidance is as follows. It's up to states when they reopen. What do they? Oh, because he said that this was going to go away or he was hopeful about hydroxychloroquine. Once again, we see that liberals talk as though Trump has made catastrophic decisions. When really, and this has been their problem, this has been their psychosis all along, he has said things that upset them, which they take to be catastrophic, but which had no meaning. Doesn't mean anything when the president says, you know, yeah, hopefully it's going to go away. Okay, that was then. And then he took a lot of, then we saw what was happening. I mean, the president doesn't know. Fauci was saying it was no big deal, too. I mean, they're just hoping that you don't ever look and do the research and figure out what a bunch of liars the libs are. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think it is um, a fair point to raise as to whether or not if he loses, um, he's going to go quietly or not. Uh, and we have to be ready for that. <laughs> I mean, come on. This woman wanted to be president of the United States. She's supposed to be serious. Hello! Here's Hillary Clinton saying that Trump, if he loses, may not peacefully leave the White House. These people are insane. This is not reasonable or rational at all. They said that he was a fascist. He was an authoritarian. People were making all these allusions to the Third Reich when Trump won 
in 2016. And you have a pandemic where he could be an, an absolute iron fisted because look at what people are doing in uh, different states, Democrat governors and even some Republican governors these days. But no, Trump has said, OK, we're going to you know, we're going to work on this. We're going to work with the private sector. We're going to have, you know, committees and talk to different states and give them funding and work with CDC. Nothing fascistic about it. In fact, if anything, he might have been a little bit too much of a of a soft touch on dealing with these different issues. He, he might have benefited from being a little bit more hardline in his approach to, you know, for example, the speed of reopen or whatever the specific dispute may be. Uh, but it, they haven't re- the Democrats haven't recalibrated any of the talking points. They haven't changed any of their uh, initial set of uh, hysterical analyses. And Hillary is just another example of this with her. Oh, he may not leave the when is that when what you could say this is without evidence. That's one of the Democrats favorite snide little phrases. What with well, what evidence is there at all? There's zero and so why do they say this? Why do they do this? Well, because it goes to that part of the liberal brain that has been so polluted with anti-Trump propaganda that there's nothing that they can say about him that is too extreme to believe. Remember, they've called him a traitor for years now. Without evidence, call him a traitor, betrayed his country, such a bad guy. What are the horrible things that Trump has done in office? I I love asking liberals this. And they'll always turn to some. Remember what he said about the Charlottesville? It's like, that's a lie. Stop lying. He didn't say the neo-Nazis were good. I've read the transcript dozens of times now. It's obvious what he said. He clarified it. That's a lot. But that's one of their first go to because libs are used to arguing from this cheap virtue position all the time of, oh, well, I'm. I'm the good person and they're the bad person. So it doesn't matter what the actual argument or issue is. You know, I'm a supporter of BLM and they are not. Therefore, I'm a better human being than those Republicans. This is what they do with everything all the time. It's never about the issue. It's always about they're just superior. Their side is so smart. That's always an amazing one to me, too. Right. Their side is so smart. Meanwhile, if you're dependent on the state, if you're effectively a ward of the state, you vote Democrat. And if you're an ultra elite billionaire, chances are you will also be a Democrat. You know, there's a wide swath of ideological proclivities and of individual situations that the Democrat Party encompasses. And um, what it doesn't include is people that see things for what they are, just want to live their lives make as many decisions for themselves as they can and just be left the heck alone. That that's the kryptonite to liberalism, which is, of course, the worst word ever for it because they're anti-liberal. Um, but conservatives, not only have we seeded institutions and this is a this is a major complaint of mine. And I know I, I complain about it in the hopes that this will just catch on more and we'll think about this more. And my friends in conservative media, I, I think we need a better name even for ourselves sometimes or better shorthand. Uh, phrases than just calling ourselves conservatives. Um, I'm okay with right wing. I don't see what the problem is with that. But uh, there, we need better language to use in these debates. We need a better term for you know what what is the word that brings together BLM activists and Antifa lunatics and statue toppling 
you know, mediocre PhD students. Like, what what brings them all? Yeah, the left, but that's very broad. We need better terms. Liberal is a misnomer, an intentional misnomer. The same way that Black Lives Matter is the name of the group so that if you challenge the group's policy positions, there's the implication of racial animus because are you saying you don't agree that Black Lives Matter? I mean, this is it's it's a cheap trick, but it works, right? Do you support Black Lives Matter? Uh, you, you better say yes to that, right? Even though, of course, Black Lives Matter. But are we talking about the group or are we talking about the phrase? This is this is how the left argues. The same thing they do with do you believe in climate change? Um, of course, I believe in climate change. The climate's always changing. What kind of a look? Kind of, oh, no. Do I think that we should put morons like AOC in charge of reordering trillions of dollars of the economy and putting endless government commissions and bureaucrats in control of every aspect of your life down the minutia, down to the minutia of the light bulbs in your house, what you're eating, how you deal with your waste? No, no, I do not agree with that. Right. So uh, the same we have the same problem with calling them liberals. They are anti-liberal. But to, to be constantly talking about the liberals assault on liberty creates a cognitive dissonance, just the, the language we use. And this really matters. You go back and, and read Orwell's uh, Orwell's essays on politics and the English language. And he knew that this is this is a critical part of the battle of ideas. What words do we have to use? Why are they always trying to force us to say undocumented? Undocumented is so easy, right? That's there's no law breaking there. You just let's just give them some documents. Illegal alien sounds like somebody that shouldn't be doing what they're doing. It's illegal, and an alien is something foreign. Uh, but no, no, undocumented. Let's just give them some documents, right? You see endless examples of this. But uh, Hillary, Hillary, Hillary. There's nothing that can be said by Hillary or any of the Democrats that will be considered beyond the pale about this president. They will go to absolute extremes and they will lie right to your face, right to America's face about all of this. Think about what they've been willing to say when the country was doing well. And now we, now the country's in trouble. It's not the end. I mean, if Democrats win, maybe, but you know, we, we'll, we'll, we will get through this, but the uh, the ferocity that has built up in the leftist mind from years now of what they view as having to suffer under Trump, uh, this is a major issue. This is a major concern we're all going to have to deal with. The, the psychosis dam is breaking. They're going to come at us with so much. And people that you thought were reasonable who were in the media before People that that you thought were maybe willing to be fair minded sometimes are just going to sound like the most extreme huff post do as I say or you're a racist ideologue imaginable. You're going to see this happening all over the place, and it's going to be a very disconcerting to anybody who hopes for a better future for this country. Oh, and, and you're going to have people weighing in like Susan Rice on why Trump is such a bad guy, because now we're thinking about we're being told, at least, that Susan Rice may become Joe Biden's vice president. Based on what? 
Susan Rice, you know, and, and I guess we've reached this point, too, in politics where it's just all about the narrative that can be forced upon people. It's not really about accomplishment or ability or leadership, certainly not for the Democrats. And look, I got a lot of nasty words for Republicans these days, too. Republicans are asleep at the wheel, not getting it done. Where is the Republican Party? How much different would the country really be right now if Republicans didn't exist? It's worth asking the question. I mean, I mean the Republican Party, not people who are conservative in their ideology. But how different would the country be if the Republican Party is like, yeah, we're just going to vote present. It's kind of what they're doing. They're just showing up, voting present. So you're going to have people like Susan Rice who are just repeating the most mindless talking points. But if you hear it enough, maybe for you and me, it doesn't have any effect. For a lot of people who are frustrated, who are scared, who don't know what the future holds, given what the country's going through right now, they hear enough of this and they're going to think, maybe we just need something else. How bad can Joe Biden really be? Guy's been in politics for longer than I've been alive. How bad can this really be? Well, pretty bad, but here's Susan Rice, play four. He should respect the science and respect the experts. Stop assailing people like Tony Fauci. Put them in the lead. The reality is that this is not a pandemic that we can wish away. You know, President Trump was cheerleading the reopening of the economy. It proved to be deadly premature. And that's why we're seeing in the South and the West some of the first states to reopen, you know, this extraordinary resurgence. We cannot do as the President Trump is doing and play politics with and be willing to sacrifice the lives of our children and their teachers. So we need to get the testing ramped up even further. We need to get the contact tracing sorted out. We need to restore some of the restrictions that were put in place early on and lifted prematurely, as California has just done. Everything she says here, let, let's think through for a second. OK, this is moronic. More testing would do what exactly? We're testing more than we've ever done before. And, you know, we're finding out we're catching about, uh, you know, 10 percent of the actual cases that are that are new every day. So we're going to do 10 times as much testing. People are getting sick all over the, uh, you know, getting this disease all over the place in California and Texas and Arizona and Florida. Recently, you know how many deaths were in Florida with, you know, 15,000 cases in a day or whatever it was? 30. I think it was 34. Uh, you know, th these are st this is still a manageable situation. But what she tells us is listen to the science. That's a stupid slogan. What does the science tell us? Testing, testing, testing. This is meaningless. The disease is spreading. You could have testing all over the place. And we do. And people will still get the disease because it is at widespread levels. It's all over the country. It's all over the world. Yeah, we'd know a little bit more. We'd have a little more data on where some of the hotspots were. Guess what? We already know where the hotspots are. Testing is not a cure. They act like testing is a vaccination. Oh, just get enough people tested and everything's going to be fine. No. And then the tracing thing that she even says that that's laughable. You're going to trace this right now. A lot of people are waiting. Uh, I have a friend who just got tested uh, and waited a week for results. So. Unless we're going to get everybody to have 15 minute tests, how, how are we ever going to have a tracing system 
The only way a tracing system was going to work is that the virus level went down to effectively zero, and then it was at such low levels of spread, and you would have to have people in place and ready to go and be efficient and be pretty lucky to trace it and to try to contain it before. It's already spread all over the place. There's, there's no tracing this. So when they say things like, he needs to listen to the science, more testing, and we need to get our tracing squared away. Bull crap. This is just noise. This is meaningless. <sighs> and but this is what you're just going to hear more and more. Think it through. OK, we're going to we're going to do what? What, what is testing going to do for us beyond what we're already, we're already testing? I hear about this all the time. We're already testing. We're seeing record levels of testing. If we doubled the testing, what would that mean? We'd have more tests done. It's just that they have no real answers on this. Oh, and then more restrictions. The the policy test and trace, all of this was never about shut down the country until the virus is gone. That was never offered to us. That was never the bargain. We were told it was about hospital capacity. And now you have people who keep coming forward to listen to the science. There are too many cases locked down again. Okay, you go into restrictions, tell people to stay home, no indoor activities. But the virus is still out there. When you start doing things again, the virus will return to a level of spread. And we cannot have a functioning society that keeps locking down for a virus that kills less than one tenth of one percent of people who get it. Which when you look at the real numbers, eventually it's probably going to be, you know, point one, maybe point three or four percent fatality rate. You can't keep locking down America over this. I, I oh, but they pretend like they have answers. These people are they look they're shameless demagogues and they're ruining the country right now. They're ruining it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And when you test, you create cases. So we've created cases. Uh, I can tell you some countries, they test when somebody walks into a hospital sick or walks into maybe a doctor's office, but usually a hospital. That's the testing they do, so they don't have cases. Whereas we do, we have all of these cases. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. At the same time, we have the lowest mortality or just about the lowest mortality in the world. Uh, we're doing a great job. We're doing very well with vaccines and we're doing very, very well with therapeutics. And I think we're going to have some very good information coming out soon. But we have the best and certainly uh, uh, the biggest, by far the biggest testing program anywhere in the world. We do have the biggest testing program and we still have all this criticism from people about how there's not enough. There's never enough testing. There's never going to be enough testing. This, this is the way. Because this is, it's like this theoretical, how do you ever get to the place where there's enough testing? Well, you're never there. So let's just complain about it constantly. Look, some of what Trump said there is a little off by the facts, but he's, he's right on the broad substance. But yeah, no, we're not, we don't have the lowest mortality in the world compared to some smaller countries, you know, New Zealand and Japan. Now, Japan's not a small country, but uh, there, are, there are countries out there that have done better than us when it comes to per capita mortality against this virus. But what he's referring to is that compared to the societies that are of comparable size, complexity, uh, diversity, you know, international travel hub, et cetera, to the United States, you're looking at large Western European countries uh, and you have 
the U.S. beating Italy, Spain, the U.K., uh, every large European country on a per capita basis, except for Germany, France, better than France. So, you know, it's it's not like America is the one place that's been hit really hard by this. But that is the lie the Democrats lean into and just will not stop telling. And it and now this is going to turn into a giant battle over schools. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Teachers unions. You may have uh, figured out at this point I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of any public sector union, quite honestly. I mean, I could be persuaded that cops and firefighters need them, but not uh, civil servants, not... You know, bureaucrats working in state capitals, people that are teaching kids in public schools. I, I just I'm not not signing on for that. But unfortunately, that's the reality of the of the education system in this country. You have this massive, bloated and, and highly uh, ineffective on the whole public school system. That is largely a jobs program for adults and at best a babysitting program for kids in failing schools. Uh, but the L.A., if you want to know what, what this is really all about, yes, it's true, and it's obvious that the shutdowns of schools in places, Los Angeles County has already said, no, not going not gonna to open schools in the fall. Um, they've already said that. That's their position as of now. Now, that could change. Uh, but when you look at what's being talked about, hold on, I, I thought this was just about safety. Um, I thought this was just about making sure that everyone's okay in the classroom. Oh, no. Turns out, I had to the Daily Caller for this one. The United Teachers Los Angeles Union has called for the defunding of police, a moratorium on new charter schools, new wealth taxes on California's millionaires and billionaires, and Medicare for all at the federal level in a research paper issued on Thursday. It's time to take a stand against Trump's dangerous anti-science agenda that puts the lives of our members, our students, and our families at risk, said United Teachers Los Angeles President Cecily Mayart Cruz. Yeah. There you go. There, I got a paper here that says that the reopening of schools should be conditioned upon the passage of Medicare for all at the federal level, along with all that other stuff. Wait, wait a second. I, I thought teachers unions just wanted to teach, man. I thought they were all about the kids. I thought this was just about getting the classroom safely to open up the wonders of, you know, the children's minds to the great literature of. And uh, there's this there, there's a whole other conversation that we should have and will have sometimes about what constitutes great literature or literature worthy of teaching children anymore. From what I understand uh, from a friend of mine who is a public school teacher in New York, there's a, there are a whole series of books, and I, I have not read them, and so I'm not deeply familiar with them, that go into, um, shall we say, stories that would be more familiar in high crime and largely minority neighborhoods instead of you know, reading Charlotte's Web or, you know, other books that many of us were, would be familiar with from the what had been considered, you know, uh, Catcher in the Rye or I don't know, things like that. No, no, no. Now they're reading books about guys who are 
this is what I've this is what I was told. Guys who, are, you know, don't have uh, like like they, a guy who comes home doesn't have a mom or dad. You know, living with his grandma. There are drug dealers on the corner and all. And I understand maybe they're trying to do this uh, outreach of familiarity over cer- under certain circumstances. But I, I I thought that great art and great literature was something that all people it's it's our, all of our inheritance, right? It's something we should all agree on. And what they teach in schools increasingly seems more overtly like political indoctrination. That's that's what I hear. And, and everyone that I know who teaches at a private school, even in New York, and there's some very fancy private schools here, they all say the schools have just become the, the administrations are very liberal because what you have, even in the private school system now, are all these ultra rich uh, Democrats who send their kids to these schools that are very uh, homogenous racially, and they send their kids to these schools, but they want at least the administration to reflect the most progressive approaches because then they feel like, you know, oh, well, our, our, yes, we send little Timothy to our $50,000 a year first grade, which that's a real thing that exists in New York, for those of you who are wondering. It's plenty of schools. 50, 50 grand for grammar school every year. Um, yes, we send little Timothy to that school, but but at least the headmaster put out a strong statement in, f- in favor of Black Lives Matter. Oh, well, then in that case, everything's fine. And in that case, you know, come on, you've done your part for social justice. You're good. You know, give yourself a pat on the back when you take a helicopter out to your beachfront mansion in the Hamptons. That's very, very nice. Uh, Pelosi is California, of course. Pelosi weighs in on this as well. And she wants to help the teachers unions hold schools and the education of these children hostage to whatever the demands of the Democratic Party are. Play clip six. So all of these things are related to the safety of our children going back. Is it hybrid? Is it virtual? Is it actual? Well, let's get give it our best shot putting our children first. We know what we need to do. Uh, the Republicans have resisted the HEROES Act and impartial because they don't want to support the state and local government, which is essential to the safety of our children going back to school as well. The resources are there. We have to make a decision. I mean, Pelosi is so shameless that I almost I, I'm almost in awe of her shamelessness sometimes. Here is someone who has been nothing but unhelpful at every stage, who delayed, you recall, twice votes to get money to people who no longer had jobs, no longer had businesses to operate because of government mandate. That's not the free market. That's the government's fault. That's the government's decision, right, to shut down your business, to mean that uh, make it so that you don't no longer have a job. And now Pelosi is trying to leverage this for the maximum. Look. There's a very there's a very clear process at work here. Uh, they're using the school issue as really a proxy for shutdown, for the the feeling at least of the country in shutdown going into the election season. And if they get schools shut down, they feel like it's going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard for Trump to win because how can he tell people you're better off now than you were four years ago when your kids can't even be in school? That's it. And that's that's really the game that is being played. It's very damaging. It's ruthless. And 
it's a it's a shame that the politics of this have gotten so ugly. But that's where this is. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. If you think that Democrats being wrong is ever an impediment to their power grabs, if you think that Democrats making enormous errors of judgment based on the results would at least result in some accountability, unfortunately, you'd be wrong, especially in states that have become political monocultures like New York, where I'm currently doing this show. Of course, I'm doing it for many of you all across the country. Governor Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, who is one of the most shameless, ruthless politicians I've ever seen in my life. He likes to do the press conference where he has this kind of rhythm. Okay, next slide. New York, give yourself a pat on the back because we did such a good job. What do I mean by good job? A good job is whatever I say it is, and so stop asking questions. But he put out a his, his own uh, state authorities put out a report on the nursing home, really the nursing home massacre that Cuomo is, as a matter of direct policy and decision-making, responsible for, he put out this report that exonerated him. You know, just, oh, yeah, no, it's totally not Cuomo's fault, federal government's fault, if anything. This has become the, this is the, the escape hatch for every stupid Democrat decision that has been made during the COVID pandemic. It's blame the federal government. Blame Trump. That's what they really mean, blame Trump. And when you when you have thousands of nursing home deaths and a March 25th order that said that that coronavirus patients coming out of hospitals from nursing homes have to go back into nursing homes. And this was because of the greatly exaggerated, as we now know, fear that they were going to run out of hospital beds, which was never even close. And. uh Cuomo puts out this report that says, quote, 80 percent of the 310 nursing homes in the state that took coronavirus patients already had patients before Cuomo issued his order. Okay, What about the other 20 percent? Anyone want to guess what happened there? What could be more straightforward? Coronavirus is particularly lethal, particularly dangerous to elderly people, period. All the data in every country, in every circumstance, suggests that. You add a layer of danger on top of that for those who have diabetes, heart conditions, uh, breathing issues, comorbidities, obesity. We know that's that's just established fact. And how could it be more obvious that there was a mistake made here than, than Cuomo sent people who were already at high risk from the disease themselves, who likely had it and sent them back into nursing homes where they were almost guaranteed to spread it to other very at risk individuals. And that's why, you know, I I just want I just want to hit the roof. I mean, I just lose my mind when I'm seeing all this. Look at what a good job Cuomo did versus uh, the the stats 
Cuomo did a terrible job in New York. There's this former Obama administration health, you know, a health uh, expert moron. I'm forgetting the guy's name right now. But he's gone on a few tears on Twitter where he's saying New York shows how it's done. New York lost 35,000 people dead. California's lost about 6,000. Texas has lost, you know, three to 4,000. Florida, something along those lines, about 4,000. New York lost 35,000 people. And Cuomo's taking a, a victory lap? I, 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 think about this. And the media's like, yeah, that's right. Cuomo did a good job. Gavin Newsom has been a tyrant in California. And guess what? Now they're back into, you know, a, a moderate lockdown phase. Even though they've had, oh, we made it probably because of the protest, right? But we don't want to talk about that. We have seen particularly younger people have been where the spread of this disease is. I know younger people also are more likely to congregate in bars and, you know, play flip cup and do all these things. But I was never very good at flip cups, so I'm a little get a little bitter about that. Or what's the other one? Um, Producer Mark, what's the game where beer you pong. throw the, the beer pong? pong? Yeah, yeah pong, beer pong. pong. Yeah, yeah, beer pong. Thank you. Thank you. We actually called it something else in my college, but it's a weird name, and no, I feel like no one ever uses that anymore. Um, anyway, yeah, people or young people are more likely to be in close quarters in those situations and possibly give each other COVID, but... They're in really close quarters. I mean, there's a photo of a protest in California with just thousands and thousands and thousands of people in such close proximity, just jammed in like sardines. And Newsom's like, yeah, isn't this great? That's great. We're really doing a great job here in California. These people are terrible. Uh, Producer Nick says Beirut. Yeah, they we, they used to call it Beirut in college, which I I. I I don't know. That's that's what they used to call beer pong. And I mean, I think it's because Beirut had a long civil war and people were, you know, a lot of artillery shells, maybe. I, I don't know. But it was called Beirut. I think you guys are just old. There's that, too. Yeah. How many kids today even remember the Lebanese civil war, which stretched really from, I think, about 1975 to 1990 or so, a 15 year long civil war? It was a rough time. Um, anyway, uh, Governor Cuomo has put out this report and it's just absurd. This report is absurd. There is a, a theory out there. I'm just going to say this. There is a theory out there that it's not just because they keep on doing these serology tests looking for antibodies, but there's also T cell immunity to infection, which means that your T cells are capable of very quickly responding to an infection. So it does not become a serious infection, take hold in you and, and you have all the symptoms and so on and so forth. Um, or the worst symptoms, at least. And there's a theory out there that there may have been much more broad exposure that also let I'm not. This is not proven. This is a theory uh, that there may have been broader exposure. And so New York, for example, where I'm telling you this disease, when it was out there, it was all over. I mean, it was spreading all over the place. Right. We all know that I was riding the subway four times a day when this virus was at its absolute unrestrained maximum, just people coughing on each other everywhere. And we're told, don't wear masks. Don't no one even heard of social distancing at that point. So there are a lot of people who were exposed to this who didn't get it or didn't really get symptoms. The serology testing that's done right now looks for the looks for antibodies. But T cell immunity is not something that it would it would catch. 
And this all goes to a theory that I think is likely I, I, I give credibility or credence to this theory that is in some corners of the medical community. Again, this is not a fact. This is a theory. But that the virus effectively spread, hit, and now you have a population that's much less susceptible to it because it effectively burned through New York. You know, it's like a forest fire. It's already burned through. It's burned down the trees and what's left and what, you know, then the regrowth is happening. And and that hadn't happened in other parts of the country. It hasn't happened yet. Not the same way. So I know there's tremendous concern about the, the second wave here. And now you've got Cuomo with 22, 22 states on a list that are required to do additional quarantine if they come back required to do quarantine for two weeks if they come back to New York City from traveling in those states. And they're going to make you fill out a form and they're going to fine you up to two thousand dollars for noncompliance. Where is the authority on this now? How is this? Where's the DOJ? Why aren't they suing? How is this not a violation of the interstate commerce clause? You're going to lock people in their homes for two weeks just because they visited a state where the the governor of New York thinks there are too many COVID cases. Remember, they've exp- they've expanded this not just to people who have the disease that's quarantine, but people that go to places where there are people with the disease, and they're going to come back and now be in a two week quarantine. Um, we, we we can't keep living like this, folks. I think that's. We're all just going to have to deal with this. You know, I, I've told you this all along. I may come on the show one day and say, guys, I feel I'm really sick. I got to take some days off here because I've caught COVID-19. I understand that. I know that that could happen. And that will change nothing that I have said to you. We all take risks. We are all living in an imperfect world where there is no guarantee of safety. Certainly not from the state, but there's no guarantee of safety, period. And we keep on getting told things by the by the people in charge who are seizing more and more authority for themselves that are just fundamentally nonsensical and not true. We, we cannot beat this virus by having these arbitrary government, you know, lockdown, shutdown, mask, distance, lockdown, shutdown, mask, distance through cycles and cycles of this. It isn't working. It has not worked. It did not work in California. Why is it going to work now in all these other places? Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. First, let me say uh, what an honor it is for me to serve under a president who is such a strong supporter of law enforcement. I've said repeatedly that, to my mind, there is no more noble profession in our country and serving as a law enforcement officer. The police put their lives and well-being on the line every day for us. And their jobs have never been more difficult than it is today. I believe it's important to, to understand that just like any other institution, there's always room for improvement. And over the past several decades, there's unquestionably been a lot of progress and reforms in policing. It's improved policing and life for the officers, their families, and their communities. We have the most professional police in the world. Thank goodness that we have 
an administration with people like Bill Barr who will say what needs to be said at this point in time about law enforcement. Um, the Democrat Party has not just turned their backs on law enforcement. They are they are throwing law enforcement officers to the violent, vengeful mob and making it less safe for all of us on the streets and doing tremendous damage to the rule of law, uh, to the sense that we have certain parts of our day-to-day lives in this country that we all agree on, right? We all want everyone. I want everyone. I want every person in America to be safe going home at night, walking to work in the morning, uh, you know, driving to their job. I want every person to have the full protection of law enforcement, to have full due process as well if they're on the wrong side of law enforcement. That's not these are not partisan agenda issues. Right? I don't want anyone to be the victim of a crime, and I want the maximum amount of uh, police protection feasible and reasonable to have a bare minimum of violent crime in our society for everyone. I don't want anyone getting attacked by uh, whether it's one individual or a violent mob on the street. Democrats don't seem to subscribe to this theory anymore. You know, we're a bad country that's very racist that needs to be punished. We, we need more violence on the streets. We need our cops to be defamed, uh, to be demoralized. That is their approach. That's what's happening in America today. And I'm happy to hear that the attorney general will say these words, um, but we need a lot more. We need a lot more than just words. You have de Blasio, for example, is out there saying things like this. Play clip five. We obviously took money out of the NYPD budget, put it into youth programs, put it into social services, put it into recreation centers for young people. That's really the the right direction. I'm glad we did that. But the fact that we're going to have to fight crime in many ways is also clear. We need the good work of the men and women of the NYPD in the streets of our city. We need communities to come forward, particularly through uh, civic leadership, clergy, cure violence movement, do all the things that they can do. And they can do things that police can't do. And, and the NYPD is quite clear about that. Community voices, community members can achieve some things differently. And we need both pieces to happen. So we're going to devote ourselves to all of it. Uh, we are going to fight this back. Uh, I've seen us fight back from much, much tougher circumstances in terms of crime and violence. We're going to fight this back, but it's going to take everyone. Oh, wait a second. You mean that moving funds from the police and making sure the cops don't feel backed up when they have to do their jobs and deal with violent thugs? You mean that that's resulted in more crime? Who could have guessed? Oh, everyone guessed. Everyone knew. But now it's, oh, no, I guess we have a problem. We need to have a whole of community approach to deal with this. Mr. de Blasio never talks about how we need to talk to clergy or just community leaders about parent uh, parental involvement in school activities, meaning parents drop the kids off, pick them up from school if they can, make sure their homework is getting done, make sure that when they get home, they're asked about their school day, make sure that there is a focus put on learning and that there is an expectation that children will do 
their homework, will be responsible, will be respectful to teachers, will be quiet when quiet is requested by teachers. That intact family situation, uh, intact families. I mean, if you look at the data on intact families and a hat tip to uh, Matt Walsh over the Daily Wire, who pulled all this data together recently. I mean, I've known these I've known the analysis here, but Matt actually pulled some facts and figures I was looking through last night. Uh, If you just look at families that are intact across America, the problem of poverty and 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 problems of poverty and domestic violence and dropping out of school and criminality all plummet across all uh, racial categories. So if you really want uh, children, whether it's white children, black children, Hispanic children, Asian children, if you really w- want to promote something as a, as a policy and as a goal that is the single most likely thing to improve their life outcomes, it would be the family. It would be promotion of getting Married, staying married, and waiting until marriage to have children. This is the, I was going to say it's like the secret pathway, but it's not secret at all. It's obvious. It's known, but Democrats won't touch it. How can they? Black Lives Matter is out there arguing for the elimination of the nuclear, openly arguing for the elimination of the nuclear family. The exact wrong thing for the black community, for all communities, all families do matter. Families are important. Families are the basis for so much of our sense of how we deal with authority and our emotional and psychological and intellectual development. No, no, but de Blasio acts like if, if you know, if we just we have a couple of more, you know, after school programs or something where people can play sports, there won't be any more violence. Look, I'm not opposed to after school programs. This is great. I'm I'm not some maniac who thinks that, you know, we shouldn't have kids have more opportunities to play and do fun things. And but I'm also not the one who was locking down playgrounds while massive protests were happening. The Blasio was. Um, but I also would like to see better outcomes uh, for all of us. It would be better for society and promoting intact families. But, you know, there's a degree of individual responsibility that goes into that. It's not the system that's preventing people from getting married and staying married. That's an individual choice. That's an individual responsibility. And, and if you look at, uh, for example, immigrants that come from communities, uh, from countries around the world, including, uh, say, Nigerian immigrants, we're told the system is very, very racist in America. Meanwhile, immigrants from Africa who, uh, particularly if we're talking about immigrants who have intact family structure, and immigrants from Africa have basically the same percentage. It's within a few percentage points uh, as uh, white American, uh, native-born white Americans do on a per capita basis. The household income of those uh, immigrants that come from Africa, predominantly West Africa in the analysis that I saw, uh, is higher than the average uh, white born in America per capita household income. So so somehow the system that is so racist and that we're, is to blame for everything does not prevent uh, immigrants from Africa from coming here. They are black 
and they do very well and they have intact family structure and they are success stories. Right. And we know about Asian family structure and the success stories there. Right. The overwhelming number of Asian immigrants to America have intact family structure and their children, you know, are you know, going off to fantastic schools. These are all generalizations, but we're talking about numbers. And when you're talking about numbers, you're talking about the aggregates. If you're going to talk about policy, policy has to be made based upon what's generally true. You can't make policy based on what's always true because nothing is going to be always true about a public policy matter. There's always going to be exceptions or places where there are there are a gray area or confusion. But it's just it's so remarkable that we're all focused now on how do we and look, they're not even the Democrats aren't even really focused on making these communities better. This is all just window dressing now. Oh, yeah, we need more money, no more funding, whatever. No, this is about hating the cops, turning out the minority vote for Biden against Trump and creating the Democrat Party, creating a whole lot of excuses for why Democrat controlled enclaves just can't get it together. Can't manage to control crime in places like Chicago or St. Louis. And now in New York, which couldn't control crime for a long time, got under control, but is now losing control. You have a um, just a whole series of excuses and no willingness to look at what would really make things better for everyone. Encouraging behaviors that would make things better for everyone. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Princeton University is a very fancy place. It's very fancy. They have eating clubs, which are like fraternities, but in multi-million dollar mansions where you're served lunch on porcelain. And then you get to talk about how much daddy has put in your trust fund this year. Princeton's a very fancy place. Uh, no question about it. But Princeton University, because it's an elite school now, and I don't even know if we should call them elite because who knows why people even get into these schools anymore. There's an open letter, though, that has been published there. Remember, this is, I think, considered the third, the number three Ivy League school after Harvard and Yale. A lot of people would put Stanford ahead of it, but Princeton's still certainly a very internationally renowned institution. And here is what this this is a faculty letter signed by I don't know, 100, 150 professors, a huge number of professors have signed this thing. And it's on anti-blackness as a foundational element to America. In fact, the very first line is, quote, anti-blackness is foundational to America. Wow. That's the very first line of this letter. And then they get into a discussion of how, how we deal with this. And the way we deal with this is anti-racism. Now, many of us have thought that the, uh, the only obligation we have as individuals and as people is to not be racist, right? Just don't be racist. That's okay. And then you're not a racist. And then what's the problem? And racism is treating people or thinking of people as less than or thinking of them differently because of their skin color. Very straightforward definition. Don't do that. You're not being racist. But no, anti-racism is the affirmative taking of steps demanded of you by the woke left 
in order to deal with the, as it is said in this letter from Princeton University, anti-blackness that is foundational to America, end quote. Um, So anti-racism now turns into a whole list of demands. Now there are demands that are coming with all of this, too. Right. George Floyd is shot is uh, is not shot is um, killed, asphyxiated in Minnesota by a police officer, national movement. And now here we are, Princeton University demanding additional pay and perks for professors of color. Well, that's quite a oh, no, but this is the way it works. Right. This is the way the movement was always going to conduct itself. Um. Here's what they write. Uh, it, it plays a role, anti-blackness, in where we live and where we are welcome. It influences the level of health care we receive. It determines the degree of risk we are assumed to pose in context from retail to lending and beyond. It informs the expectations and tactics of law enforcement. Anti-black racism has hamstrung our political process. It is rampant even in our most progressive communities. And it plays a powerful role at institutions like Princeton, despite declared values of diversity and inclusion. So anti-blackness, according to this open letter signed by, written by professors at Princeton, signed by professors at Princeton, anti-blackness is a um, constant failing of Princeton University, even though Princeton University thinks of itself as very diverse and progressive and all the rest of it, right? Not enough. So you'd say, well, okay, what are we supposed to do about it? Let's just assume that let's just accept this premise for a second that the country is still so racist. And we don't talk about this enough. We talk about it every day. We talk about this all the time. CNN, I left this out of today's uh, show. I shouldn't have, is creating a new, I believe it is called a, quote, race coverage team, end quote, to focus on race issues at CNN, specifically in the newsroom. So they're going to have a race uh, you know, you talk about your beats in the news uh, on the uh, in the news world. Race is now going to be a a specialization at CNN for journalists. I'm not making this up. This is what Jeff Zucker said yesterday. Uh, they came out and talked about this. So, OK, well, what can we do? How do you get to be an anti-racist? Is it enough to just treat uh, people of color as fellow human beings deserving of all the same rights and and dignity and decency that you'd give to any and to any person and to be an advocate for treating everyone equally under the law and make sure that everyone is judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Oh, no, no, no. That's not anti-racism. Anti-racism is, quote, uh, quote create a center specifically dedicated to anti-racism at Princeton University. Reward the invisible work done by faculty of color with course relief and summer salary. That's right. Additional financial perks. Reconsider the use of standardized testing at Princeton University, which research research shows to be strongly correlated with the underrepresentation of people of color. Acknowledge on the Princeton homepage that the university is cited on indigenous land. Uh, the statement should explicitly acknowledge that Princeton University's land is unceded and quote. Acknowledge the land of this university is the unceded traditional territory of the Nanticoke Leni Lenape tribal nation. I mean, oh my gosh. That's right. Bend the knee. Do as we say. All of our politics. Give us money. Give us privileges. Give us what we want, or else you're racist. That's what it's turned into at Princeton. And it's not the only place. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Harsanyi time. We should make like a little intro for him or something. Our buddy David Harsanyi is with us now. He is a senior writer at National Review, and he's got a piece coming out on what I was talking about earlier in the show about Cuomo's ill-deserved, undeserved victory lap. Mr. Harsanyi, great to have you back, sir. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, So Cuomo, with 35,000 deaths in his state, is creating artwork. That's right. This is a real thing, folks, for those of you who are wondering. Artwork to commemorate what a tremendous victory uh, he has had here with all of this. Tell us what you think about all that. Oh, wait, hold on. I actually, I'm trying to pull up the the name of it. It is the uh, New York Tough poster of success under Cuomo's leadership fighting against COVID-19. What do you think, David? Uh, not, a, not a fan of it because it's uh, mythical. And uh, it's obviously a concerted, concerted effort by his allies and himself to make it seem that, new, that you know his policies were successful in New York, which... They most certainly were not um, by any standard. In fact, if you if you compare New York to other countries in the world, it's one of the worst. If you compare it to any state in America, it's the worst. Um, and when you think about it more deeply, and you know, many people have mentioned this, but Cuomo made perhaps one of the most deadly policy mistakes in the whole coronavirus crisis by sending uh, infected people back to the nursing home. So. That whole entire ridiculous pyramid poster he has uh, is is insulting to anyone who was paying attention. If it was done right, there would be 30,000 dead people at the bottom of that pyramid, frankly. You know, and uh, it's just disgusting that uh, the media has basically given him a pass. It's disgusting that his poll numbers are so high because I have to assume that most people don't know all the, you know, things that have happened. And it's disgusting that he blames other states now for for. for mismanaging when he is most incompetent uh, governor in America. I can put it more starkly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, tell us how you really feel. I totally agree with you. I, I, I'm i a little astonished. I Look, New York is uh, overwhelmingly Democrat state, as we all know. I think statewide, it's like three to one. New York City, it's like eight to one Democrat to Republican. And yet, I don't know how anyone could be so dumb and it's like a 70% approval rating he allegedly has in the state. Be so dumb as to think that he did a good job, but it really, this has turned into whoever mouths the, the approved slogans of the lockdown movement, you know, who's ever like, wear a mask and, you know, social distance and listen to the science and all these things that Cuomo's saying all the time. If you just say all that stuff, you're like one of the good guys, even if you were sending... COVID positive seniors into nursing homes to kill a lot of their uh, fellow nursing home residents. That's what happened. Was that your New York accent that you just did? That was Cuomo. <laughs> this is, you know, you ever hear what a press conference, he sort of, he goes up here and then sometimes he brings it down here for a little bit. But then he goes back yeah. and it's kind of slow. But you were saying, David. He, um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's all correct, you know, and, 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 I think part of the problem is that you have him giving competent looking or 
you know, something that projects comp- competence in press conferences, right? So I think those press, press conferences almost fooled me in the beginning as well. You know, he looked like he knew what he was doing, looked like he had control of the situation, he's got the code on, you know, all that stuff. Um, and then obviously he's on, you know, CNN every day with his brother just lobbing softballs at him. He's on uh, uh, The Tonight Show where they're talking about all the women who are really into him because he's so competent, et cetera, and you create this perception of competence that does not exist. And then the media, not all, I have to say, I mean, some people have gone after him, but in general, given him a pass. And I think that that all, you know, is part of it. And then partisanship is part of it as well. You know, people want to blame Trump so they don't blame Cuomo or, you know, or whatever. But 77%, he's one of the most popular governors in America. And his state has, you know, I mentioned, I think, this last week on your show, but there are more deaths in New York nursing homes than there are in the entire state of Florida, and the entire state of Texas, and I believe still the entire state of Arizona. I, which is, uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, you would think that don't we always hear things like don't the results speak for themselves? This has been a, as you as you laid it out, a propaganda campaign to completely overcome and really erase the results because there's there's no arguing the numbers. I mean, New York, I'm right in the middle of it. I was living here. I couldn't see family members for months, couldn't do anything. And this place was a catastrophe, an absolute catastrophe. And, and you know, David, I also have to wonder and I know you're somebody who. You're, you know, you're you're more open to some of the uh, more traditional mitigation arguments working than I am. I'm not saying they're wrong. I just I think I'm a little more skeptical of some of than you, although I don't want to put words in your mouth. But New York had a lockdown where everyone wore a mask and the disease was raging out of control for about 90 days. Right. And I never saw anybody without a mask right. and everyone was on lockdown. But the disease was still spreading and spreading and spreading, including spreading in people's homes. California has been under, you know, the Democrat mantra of mask, 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 social distance, all this stuff. And now they're rolling back. No more indoor stuff. They're just shy of a phase one lockdown. If the policies work, why aren't they working? Right. Well, here's my position on on this stuff. To some extent, I have to I have to trust experts because that's how we live in life. I get on a plane. I have to trust the the pilot's going to get me there. Um, but more as we get deeper into this, I realize how little they know. Yes. And I, I'm very, very skeptical of anything they say. Not, not because I think that most of them have, you know, bad intent. It's just that they don't know everything we think we know. We do. There's just no, we, we will not make sense of this for years. Um, and I'm all with the experts until one topic, and maybe you've discussed this, is opening the schools. It is clear that the science says open the schools. There, the science says it. Common sense says it. My empirical view of, of it says so. And yet now Democrats are against that as well, which just tells me they want to keep this going until November, many of them. And there's just no other way to look at what they're up to and not come to that conclusion, at least from my perspective. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And, and on your that, that's for me the main thing, David, it's that there are things that experts know and there are things experts know more than the general public. But it's important to establish and know what those are as a non-expert, because there are also things that experts either think they know or should know and do not. And what we're seeing with this virus, I think, is a lot of that. You know, you ask them, why is it that we have this six foot guidance rule? What's that based on? The answer is it's a guess. There are other countries that have a three foot social distancing rule. Why isn't it 10 feet? How could you even enforce this? It's actually absurd, but it's just, you know, like telling people to wash their hands a lot. If washing hands could stop this disease from being a pandemic, 
obviously we'd be in much better shape. It's not enough. Now, I understand all these things together, they would argue, might lower the transmission some degree, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic, one for which they can't tell us how long immunity lasts, one for which they can't tell us uh, whether a vaccine would even be good for more than one year, more than one side. I mean, it's like there's all these things they just don't know. But all you have to do if you're a Democrat is go on TV or, or go on social media and say, listen to the experts as if that's some kind of panacea. Um, but I, I did want to get your take also on uh, and this was just this was just breaking today. So it's something new to add into our discussions about uh, Barry Weiss resigning and sending out a blistering letter of resignation um, she's at the New York Times. Tell folks who wh- why do we care about who Barry Weiss is and, and what does this tell us about what's going on with the crazy woke libs at the New York Times? Barry Weiss is a person that maybe five years ago we just call a, a, a liberal, right? Uh, she has um, she's probably more on the moderate side. I don't know all her positions, but she's, you know, she's pro Israel. You know, she takes a more moderate view of Israel and, and other issues like that. You know, she calls that anti-Semitism, even if it's uh, coming from certain, you know, it's coming from the community, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Farrakhan, other, unlike some some other editorialists. But she, in, in, as we know, at The New York Times, you have incredibly woke and incredibly uh you know, I don't know what to call them, progressive people who complain and get people fired who they disagree with and pretend that words are violence. And she is on the liberal end of things. I mean, the liberal and the small L real sense of things. And uh, she was basically, from what her letter says, and there's no reason to disbelieve it, considering all the other things we've seen, that she was bullied and uh, insulted and uh, made to feel unwelcome there and had to leave. So she wrote a letter, which I think is probably the best thing she's written. It's a fantastic letter about liberalism, about liberalism and about what went on there and open discourse. And she left. Uh, I think it's a it's an incredibly notable for people who are in journalism and writers. I think that her letter is incredibly important. I feel like it will be. It feels that way to me. And maybe it will be a turning point. I hope it will be. Do you think it this- also has a sense that she might sue them? You know, she's kind of intimates that she will. And I hope she does, actually. Yeah, do, you, do you think that there's I mean, look, are you, you've worked. I know you've worked at some some you know large newspapers in the past. You worked at the, the Denver Post and you've been in a, at a few places in the past where I'm sure there were liberal journalists there. So uh, do you get I don't, I don't, you haven't worked at the Times if memory serves. But do you think that there's embarrassment among the employees of the newsroom who just won't come out and say it or do you I know I'm asking you to kind of look in the crystal ball a little bit, but they, they can't you can't really think you're a journalist and that you make your living on free speech and that what's going on right now isn't insane. Right. Or or am I giving I'm talking about for the majority of the people that work in these places or am I giving them too much credit? I think there's probably a large contingent that are just not, you know, I wouldn't call them cowards, but they don't want to be fired. They don't want the tension. They just want to do whatever they're doing, right? Their movie reviews, whatever, right? And then there's a contingent, the, the people we know on the editorial page and the columnists who are themselves bullies and cowards. And I, I think they're activists and they think that what they're doing, like a religious fanatic does, is always okay because they're zealous about it and they believe it really deeply. Uh, these are the people who, you know, peddle pseudo historic uh, 1619 projects and write column at race obsessed column after column, calling anyone who disagrees with them a racist. And these people on the page, including including Paul Krugman, who does similar sorts of things, are uh, are people who, who see no problem bullying others. Paul Krugman, 
went out of his way recently to try to get someone at the University of Chicago fired because he said all lives matter. I forgot what he did. Some some, you know, free speech crime or thought, you know, wrong thing crime. And uh, so that's, I think, what, uh, you know, it's a small segment, but it's the segment of people, the faction that run the paper. Uh, Barry Weiss said that Twitter is the real editor of the New York Times editorial page. And that's the truth. I think a mob runs the paper. Remember a few, like last year or now, on a number of occasions, they've changed headlines. The news sites yep. changed headlines because the Biden campaign called or the Twitter got mad. They are, they're just cowards. These are cowards. It started at the Atlantic with Kevin Williamson, who's my colleague now, uh, being fired for, for having an opinion about something. And, and, it, and, it, and now we see it there. David Arsani, everybody. David, keep in the fight. Stay safe. Thanks for joining us, my friend. Thank you. Anytime. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I figured I'd share with you some of what this uh, New York Times editor Barry Weiss puts in a resignation letter. Remember, New York Times is the the grand uh, cathedral. They, they probably wouldn't like to be called that. But, you know, it's the I don't know what's what's the what's the proper way of saying it. Um the Superdome. How about that? <laughs> it's the Superdome of leftist uh, journalism, of Democrat aligned journalism in America. It's it's the most elite newspaper, even more so really than the Washington Post. And uh, yeah, they've lost their minds over there. That's that's for sure. Barry Weiss in her resignation letter has the following. Um, this is I guess for this is to Salzberger, the guy who owns it, runs it. It is with sadness that I write to tell you I'm resigning from New York Times. I joined the paper with gratitude and optimism three years ago. Blah, blah. A voice to bring other voices. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, here we go. Good stuff. Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first draft, a rough draft of history. Now history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. Wow. I mean, this isn't a surprise at all, right? It's just... Somebody from the inside, a liberal, my friends, who would disagree with you listening to this on 90 percent of stuff in life or maybe 70 percent. She's a little less crazy than some of the others, but would disagree with you almost all the time and was an editor at this paper. And she's resigning and she is telling you what I tell you every day about The New York Times and what new you know about The New York Times is, in fact, entirely true. It's true. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not right wing radio. Rah, rah. I'm not sitting here, you know, they're the worst. They hate him. They're terrible. You know, I'm not doing any of that. I'm just telling you the truth. And it's amazing that this is what it's come to. The most famous newspaper, or arguably, I think pretty clearly, in the country is run by, she says, Twitter and the opinion of libs on that social media platform. I mean, Twitter has effectively destroyed the facade of journalism because you have all these people 
who now don't have to go through an editor, don't have any quality control over their sharing of thoughts. And they're telling us, I'm a huge leftist. I'm a Marxist. I'm a lunatic social justice warrior. Oh, I'm now just covering national politics on the front page of the New York Times. And I swear I have no bias. As if we're all morons, right? As if we don't know exactly what's going on there. A little more from her resignation letter. My own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi and a racist. I have learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by coworkers. My work and my character are openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There, some coworkers insist I need to be rooted out if this company is to be a truly inclusive one, while others post axe emojis next to my name. Wow. Still other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action. They never are. There are terms for all of this. Unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. I'm no legal expert, but I know that this is wrong. Oh, yeah, sue him. Go for it, Barry. Sue the New York Times into oblivion. Go for it. I think this is fantastic. Uh, they should be sued. Um, it's they're, they're, This is a great, a great letter. Basically, look, it's worth reading the whole thing. I won't read it to you all on air. Um, Producer Mark, maybe we should post it on BuckSexton.com. I don't know if people would. Do you think people would like? Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll tweet. I'll tweet it out. I'll tweet it out. Um, but it's amazing. Uh, this is my favorite thing. Why edit something challenging to our readers or something boldly only to go through numbing process of making it ideologically kosher when we can assure ourselves of job security by publishing our 4,000th op-ed arguing that Donald Trump is a unique danger to the country and the world. <laughs> it's totally true. She's telling you the truth. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. All right, Roll Call. Let's hit it. Remember, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Please follow the page if you have not already. If you're on Facebook and you listen to the show every day, why aren't you part of the Freedom Hut Online? And also go to BuckSexton.com for stories posted throughout the day. You can even listen to the podcast there. You can listen on Spotify. Producer Mark points out the company that both that pays us has a fantastic app, iHeartRadio app, which you can listen to the podcast on that as well. Please pass the buck. Am I, uh, have I, am I good here, Mark? Anything else I'm leaving off? Uh, BuckSexton.com. Right, BuckSexton.com. Great website that we've got going on. Uh, so, yeah. There we go. We, we, we got good things. Good things. Oh, and don't forget the Buck Brief. Please share that to your Facebook page. That'll be up. Uh, that's up today already. All right. Jim. Buck, love the show. Listen to it often after work at the golf course while I practice my game. 
I'm usually starving at this time, and my attention focuses when you talk about food. In particular, you've recently discussed both a skillet-seared steak that you based in herb butter and a spaghetti carbonara. Both of these sound decadent and delicious. Unable to decide which of these to have tonight, so I decided to have both. I want you to know the meal was amazing. Not surprised. The two go together perfectly and should become your signature dish. Thanks for the food tips and keep up the good fight. Shields on, my friends. Now I'm off to a food coma. Jim, you made us. It's a power move, my friend. That's some good stuff. Making sure that you have what you need on the plate. Um, let's uh, producer Mark. Um, if I if I told you that tonight you were going to have a fantastic steak cut of your choice, perfectly cooked and seasoned, or a really excellent creamy spaghetti carbonara, but you can only have one. Which one do you go with? That is a tough choice, Buck. I think so, too, actually. Like, they're both I mean, so good. I go steak just because I think that's my favorite thing. Yeah, but, I probably go steak, too. But what's on the side of the steak? Maybe a nice baked potato? Yeah, something like that. Mm. If you got, you know, you got to have some kind of a starch, I guess. Steakhouse sides are good, but, you know, you get more variety. The thing, you go to a steakhouse for steak, maybe for the seafood. Sometimes the sides are good. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm making myself hungry. Even It's not even dinner time for me. I'm making myself hungry just thinking about this. But, yeah, no, carbonara is my favorite. You told me your favorite pasta was ravioli? Uh, no, I don't even remember if spaghetti I said... meatballs. My, no, that was not my favorite. Rigatoni was producer Nick's favorite. Oh, Rigatoni was producer Nick's I favorite. guess I'd go penne alla vodka. Yeah. Maybe penne some tortellini. All right. Uh, now I really am getting hungry. D, Buck, my husband and I met you on July 4th, 2019 at the Trump International Hotel. Cool. We live in Mississippi. We listen to you on the radio. Today you said that there aren't enough people standing up for what is right. I'm ready. Please give us some insight on how we need to start. Should we start having peaceful protests locally and try to build from there? We are ready to stand up for America. I think that's what we will call our group. We still need some advice from you. D, I think you got, first of all, very lovely meeting you and the husband. And uh, yes, indeed, I was on July 4th, 2019 at the Trump Hotel in D.C. So that is that is uh, accurate. That is true. And as for um, how to get going and how to mobilize, I think that you're on the right track. I think that you've pretty much got it. Do as you were planning on doing here. Get up and running on it. You know, just do your thing. Um, lo- lo- you know, local organizations very important. With social media, there's a lot of reach and power that you can have, especially if the movement, you know, if you are on message and people seem... Like they're both energized, but also think of the way that that we could have such a differentiation between conservative mobilization, Republican Party, people voting for Trump and how we would have orderly, safe, respectful protest or respectful demonstrations versus the anarchy, absurdity and uh, and viciousness of these lib protesters who are out there. So there you go. Um yeah, I think, D, that's the way to do it. And I think your instincts are spot on. I would just go for it and uh, say hi to the hubs for me. Shield tie. Toby, Buck, I am crushed upon hearing about Jay Severin. I'm a fan from Boston, and he introduced me to Conservative Talk Radio when he had the afternoon show. Even a liberal Boston, he was a giant. Very saddened. 
Yeah, Toby, I, I totally appreciate and understand that. Uh, Jay Severin was, he was a real radio host, and I mean that in, in, I think he would know that too. I mean that as a term of real respect. You know, he was, he was the real deal. He wasn't somebody that just, uh, you know, was able to play the corporate game and, you know, have a lot of guests on or hang on to somebody else's coattails to get a radio show uh, and, you know, get on, get on stations. I mean, he, he's really good. He was good at radio. He was talented at that medium and was a guy who did his own thinking. And look, I, I know that he had, he got into some hot water here and there for what he said. Um, but that's because he was a guy who was pushing it along the edge and that makes for interesting radio. And, uh, I always appreciated he, I mean, we, we weren't close or anything like that, but I could speak to him about the business and especially it was very early for me. And he, and I, there was a respect between us whenever we talked about this because he knew right away and said that I was a, I was a real radio guy. And he recognized that and said that you're going to have a very you're going to have a very big career if you keep doing this. And Jay was not a, a warm and fuzzy kind of a guy, but he, you know, game respects game kind of a thing. And I always listen to Jay as somebody who I knew. The only reason this guy had a radio show is because he was good at this. That's not true about everybody. Um, let's see here. Uh, James Buck. Anyway, I also pardon me just to finish off with with Severin. Um, you know, thoughts and prayers to his family. And, and it was uh, it was said, look, uh, we've lost. I wasn't even planning on going here. We've lost Jay Severin this year from the, you know, the, the world of media that I've operated in. Someone that was a colleague of mine. We lost Doc Thompson. Um, a terrible accident. Uh, you know, it's we've lost. Those are two guys I worked with at, at the Blaze and they were taken uh, way before their time. So. Make every day count, folks. Make every day count. I know it's maybe trite to say, trite to hear, but it's still true. James, Buck, I don't know if you talked about this. Now we are being more, even more forced to wear a mask. At stores, if you don't, in all of New York State, you can get a $1,000 fine, and stores will get a $2,000 fine. Cops can get called on you. To me, this is unconstitutional and, in my view, illegal. With the fine, they are wasting or our emergency resources to arrest maskless people. Shields high from WGY up in Albany. James, New York is going nuts, man. We be, COVID basically is not a problem in New York anymore. This is not. I mean, there's like very few cases. No one's dying from it, really. I mean, maybe a half dozen people a day, which is sad for every case is a tragedy. But, you know, hundreds of people are dying from cancer. Hundreds of people are dying from heart disease every single day. I mean, people die from things that happens. Uh, and, and the mask mandates are only going to get more extreme. And the. Fights that we see, I, we didn't play. There was this guy who was just great. It was uh, approached by two. I should have. Producer Mark, can we find? Well, I know it's late, but I want to use it tomorrow. We got to clean it up, though, because there's a little bit of curses. But the guy who's is he in a Costco and a, a woman comes up to him and she's like, you aren't wearing a mask. You know, and he's we played like, that well, last why week. don't you just back off? Like, I'm just, you know, oh, look, getting up in my face. You know, the whole thing you know I'm talking about. Yeah, I think we played that last week. Did we? Yeah, the guy who's yelling, uh. I'm threatened or something like that. No, no, oh, different no, no, guy. The very, no, no, no. Man, that Costco's guy a hot spot for this lately. 
No, no, no. That, that, that guy just lost his mind on somebody who was screaming. This guy was like, oh, look at you trying to get a little bit of, little bit of video. He's got like jean shorts on, a tucked in T-shirt, trucker hat. This guy's great. This guy and I would be buddies. He's hilarious. There's two women are videotaping him because he's in a store without a mask. And he's like, why don't you just mind your own business? And they're all just like, yeah, I'm taking video. I'll find it. I'll send it to you. It's great. It's great. I really like this guy. He's, he's just funny. Like, he just makes a joke out of it because they're really trying to antagonize him. And he's just like, what are you doing? You know what the chances are that they're antagonizing a guy who doesn't have a virus, who has nothing to spread to anybody? It's about 99.9999%. That's how insane people are now. Oh, if there's any chance at all of, you know, somebody having, um, you know, ah, it just drives me nuts. It's a really it interesting advertising strategy by Costco. There you go. They keep sending in people without masks so they get videotaped in Costco's. Hmm. I'm not sure that's necessarily the kind it's of... It's definitely not the truth, but it, if it was, it'd be smart. For. No, I, I know what you're saying. But I get you. But yeah, this mask thing is going to be... Uh, this is going to continue on. And look, we really what we really need is... This, we need to run some experiments with people wearing masks. And, you know, we have to do this. We're, we're going to have to run some some true, controlled, gold standard mask experiments and i will bet money that they will find out if and when they no, but they're going to try not to do this because think of what that would mean for the global health community and all the experts we've we've been masking people thinking that it protects it's one thing you know yeah it prevents you from spitting on somebody if you're up close if a doctor is going to be examining you you know you don't have their breath directly on you so there's some just sort of general hygiene field dude but in terms of preventing viral spread of res- respiratory droplets that spread virus. I, I look, I'm I would be fascinated to see a real study where you have, OK, let's have a bunch of people in a room for an hour with somebody who has covid and, uh, you know, you have a bunch of volunteers who are in there. Everyone's wearing masks and they're all in a room together for an hour. And like how many of them get it and how many of them don't? I mean, I don't know how you'd even construct the experiment so that it would be definitive, but get as close to it as possible. Um. That's that's what I would want to see, because I, I just if it was just as easy as wearing masks, we wouldn't have, you know, the pro- we wouldn't have this problem. People have been wearing masks for months, for months. Still hundreds of thousands of cases. All the time. Um, anyway, I just. I wish I wish it were as simple as just browbeat those evil Republicans into wearing masks. Um, Dave, dude, I'm an observer on Facebook for the most part. Love seeing people's kids, pics, family, uh, vacation, etc. God forbid you try to be nice and respond to anything political. People freak out. I have no idea how you do what you do. You have much thicker skin than I do, my friend. <laughs> Dave, they will freak out on me all the time. The thing is, anyone who freaks out is inherently an unstable loser. And you just you learned it very quickly. You're like, what is what is wrong with people? You know, what is wrong with them? So there's that. Um, You just got you just got to roll with it, man. Just got to roll with it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. More roll call. John, listen to your Friday night show right now on podcast. Heard your response to Frank at the end. Heard you mention getting a PS4 and hopping on some Call of Duty. 
man, I haven't been out of work due to COVID because I work in water distribution. However, my job has had me quarantined to home outside of work hours to ensure we don't bring it in the rest of the staff. Minus working out or binge watching movies and TV with my wife, my life has been bourbon and Call of Duty. <laughs> if you do indeed get a PS4 and hop on for Call of Duty, give me a holler. We can start a Freedom Hut Shields High team. Keep up the good fight and God bless. John, this may have to happen. I kind of like this idea. We start, a, we start a team Freedom Hut on Call of Duty and I'll play. We could all talk and play Call of Duty together with whoever wants to show up and do it. That'd be Producer Mark, do you ever do Call of Duty? Uh, I've dabbled, but not as much as some of the uh, more extreme gamers I, do. I played, my older brother and I were playing together over the weekend. We had a lot of fun, and I am getting less terrible at it. I'm, a, I'm sort of freakishly good at the FIFA soccer game. Like, I, I have a lot of ability there for whatever reason. Well, because I've played it a lot in my youth. Uh, and I just understand soccer well, which I shouldn't admit because it makes me sound less American. But Call of Duty... Man, these guys, people are really fast with those controls. I just got to yeah, say, they're th very good. That's why I don't play any of the shooter games often is because I'm so bad at them in comparison to everyone else. Yeah, I also sometimes, um, I get, I shouldn't admit this on the radio, but uh, I'm the guy that someone will sneak up behind when I have a fully automatic weapon and they have a knife and they will knife me and then they'll squat on my corpse and I'll hear someone screaming over their headset, that's right, noob, that's right. <laughs> I'm always like, why do you have to be so mean? You already stuck a knife in me from behind. Uh, that's what ends up happening. Mark writes, Buck, please explain on your show why a governor can declare a state of emergency and why they appear to have no limits on their power during this time period with no expiration date in sight. Why are our Republican state legislators not fighting back anywhere? Why are businesses not pooling money to sue? Why are these powers not being challenged in the courts? Why is there not a tsunami of lawsuits across the country fighting these arbitrary powers? How, can, uh, how long can a gover uh, governor maintain these emergency powers? Because to me, it seems the answer is forever. Um, Mark, you are absolutely correct. It does seem like it's forever. It seems like it's at their whim, and there's no stopping this. And it's just absurd. It is just... It's just... Uh, I don't know. DOJ needs to start suing. We need we need some legal pushback on this uh, against the states. They're out of control. So uh, it's nuts. Brett writes in, hope you and Mark get a laugh out of this. My gym crunch fitness in Ohio is making us wear masks when we walk in. And as we walk around from equipment to equipment, a.k.a. about five minutes of my workout, the other hour plus of my workout, I'm allowed to spread all the germs I want. Follow the science. Yeah, man. This is just it's just nonsense what people say. Just nonsense. What's going on with a lot of these restrictions? Just it just counter. It's counterintuitive. It's it's irrational. It's irrational. You don't have to be an expert to know when something's irrational. You just have to be a smart person who's not afraid of the truth and knowing the truth. Well, that's why you're here in the hut, my friends, because you know we are not afraid of it. In fact, we chase down that truth. We say, truth, I want to be friends. Be my friend, truth. Thanks for hanging out, as always. Pass the buck. Speaking of friends, to some of your friends, we'll be back tomorrow, Mark and I, with a fantastic show for all of you, as always, here in the Freedom Hut, no matter what we face. We face it together. Shields high.